Okay, Acts 26 is the book or the chapter we're up to now. And uh, the latter part of Acts is, is quite funny. And we've heard it probably from two or three speakers previous that they've struggled with the chapter um, that they've been given. Um, Pete, son, if he's here, he tried to, yes, tried to steal this chapter off me because 25 was harder. Um, and so all I had to do was show him the text I sent him. It was clear in English. Uh, chapter 25, Peter Sun, thank you very much. Um, so no dispute, but for me, uh, and I did realise this um, a while ago, obviously I spoke on Acts 22, and that has Paul's conversion in it. And of course, once again, Acts 26 is about Paul's conversion. Um, you go back to, what is it, Acts what is it, Acts 9, is it, is Paul's conversion from Luke's perspective? And so this is the third time uh, we're going to go through Paul's conversion, his testimony. Now note it's Luke's, uh, in Acts 9 it was Luke's understanding um, of how Paul was converted, and Acts 22 was Paul's understanding with um, talking to a, a mob. And now we have Paul talking to someone completely different, and there are a few changes that Paul brings in discussing that same conversion of himself on the road to Damascus where he met the Lord Jesus. What I want to do is it's quite a long chapter, so I was going to read it, but then that took me like 15 minutes and it didn't give me a lot of time. So basically the first part, Acts 26, we'll read some of it. Acts 26 and verse 1, and it carries on. It's Paul coming into the meeting uh, with King Agrippa. That's what he's going to do. Um, and he's going to explain. Uh, Festus has brought him in because he's not sure what's going on. He doesn't seem to understand what he can write from the previous chapter. And so he's brought in, as Peter said, his boss, uh, King Agrippa. And so Paul starts off telling him, King Agrippa, about himself. Uh, from his youth, um, to what he was, and then his conversion uh, and how um, he met Jesus on the road. Uh, after that, they have a discussion. Of course, Paul talks about the hope that the 12 tribes have, his nation has, his forefathers had, uh, and that is in the resurrection. And then after that, um, Paul talks about uh, who Christ is and how God and the prophets talked about him. Now I'm going to read from verses 24, though I'm going, to look for the whole, I'm going to look at the whole chapter, but that's basically just a quick overview of the first half, and then the second bit I will read. So from verse 24, that's what happened at the start, and from verse 24 is Paul's personal appeal to King Agrippa. And he says this in verse 24, chapter 26. Now as he thus made his defence, Festus spoke up with a loud voice. Paul, you are beside yourself. He's just talking about the resurrection. Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning has driven you mad. But Paul said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but, the word, but I speak the words of truth and reason. For the, king bef uh, for the king before whom I speak freely knows these things, for I'm convinced that none of these things escape his attention since this thing was not done in silence or in a corner. King Agrippa, you believe in the prophets. I know you believe in them. 
And then in verse 28, then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuaded me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me today, might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for in these chains. And when he had said these things, the king stood up, as well with the governor and with um, Bernice and those who sat with them, and they'd gone aside and they talked amongst themselves, saying, this man has done nothing wrong, deserving of death or chains. And King Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And end it there. So we'll just go through it very quickly, uh, this chapter. And they're just hopefully some of the interesting bits that I picked out. Uh, the last couple of weeks, for some reason, you know how you love an author or you love listening to a speaker. And I remember back probably 20 years ago, I had this guy's tapes and I hadn't listened to him for a long time. And over the last couple of weeks, he just came back to me and I started going not on tape cassette now, but YouTube and listening to some of his sermons. And I've got some of his books. He's a wee bit controversial. Uh, not everyone agrees with his theology. But his name is Chuck Colson. Now, Chuck Colson was second in charge in the United States with uh, Richard Nixon in the 70s. He got done for the Watergate and was put in prison. But before Chuck Colson was put in prison, um, he became a Christian and then went to prison, came out of prison, went back to prison because he wanted to share the gospel. Very, very intelligent man, owned his own law firm before going into politics and was the right-hand man to Richard Nixon. And so he was very much so um, in prison, taking the gospel in to prisoners. And it was very successful. In fact, he started prison fellowship uh, in the end. And for some reason, I just started picking up and reading again, because I've got some of his books, and watching on YouTube some of his stories. But one of his famous stories, and I've said it here before a few years ago, and I want to say it again because it relates to what we've been looking at in the latter part of the chapters of Acts. Even though they're hard, but it shows us um, the story, what it's about. And so Chuck Colson told this story of a fourth century Christian monk, 391 AD. He was out praying, as monks do, by themselves, secluded. Uh, his name was Telemachus, and all he was doing was seeking the Lord. Till one day he felt the Lord prompt him to go to Rome. Now he didn't know why, and he didn't ask why. He got all his belongings, which wasn't much, and he put them in a sack, and he went to Rome. Three and a half weeks walk. Now, he got to Rome, and he found that there wasn't many people around until someone stopped him and said, what are you doing? He said, I've come to Rome because God wants me here. And they said, well, you should go to the Colosseum because it's on today, and that's where everybody is. And so this little Telemachus decided to go to the giant Colosseum in Rome. Now... Historians back then, 100 or 200 years ago, believed that the Roman Colosseum could hold 86,000 people. Modern historians think it's more likely around 50 or 60,000 standing room. So it's, it's quite a big stadium. And so little Telemachus went in this day, and to his amazement, he saw what was going on. Gladiators were killing gladiators. 
Gladiators were killing animals. Gladiators were killing men. And he was astonished to see this sight of 50 and 60,000 people enjoying this. And he thought to himself, this is why he is here. So he began to cry out, in the name of Christ, forbear, which means stop. No one, of course, would listen to a little man like that. So he thought he should do the only thing proper, and he jumped, which is about 11-foot drop, into the stadium, into the arena itself. And he goes up to a gladiator, and he cries out to him, in the name of Christ, forbear. Now, the gladiator wasn't quite sure what to do. He didn't know is this part of the act, and the crowd didn't know what was going on. This little man, dressed in brown, was now the centre of attention, crying out, in the name of Christ, forbear. So the gladiator looks at the crowd, suggesting, well, what do I do? And so the crowd pick up that it is not part of the games, it's not an act, so they cry out, run him through, run him through. So the gladiator does that. He puts his sword straight through this little man, Telemachus, and runs him through. He drops to his knee, but still saying them words, in the name of Christ, forbear. The crowd yell out again, run him through again. And so that's what he does. And it's said that he lay dying in his own pool of blood, whispering them words, in the name of Christ, forbear. Now, the crowd yell, and they get on to the next item. But somewhere, this is a true story, somewhere in the top yelled out, obviously only, if like, you go to a rugby game, only probably 20 people will hear you, but one man yelled out that this is disgusting and walked away. The next man heard him and thought the same and walked away. In two hours' time, that stadium was emptied. Never to open again where man would kill men. For one man acted on God and did what God wanted him to do. But he not only acted, he spoke. And that, for me, is a picture of Paul as he's going through in his life through Acts. That he acted as this example of what Christ would want him to be. But he also spoke it as well. Whether he came up against a mob in Acts 22, whether he is talking to Felix or Festus, or whether he is talking to a king, he speaks the gospel. When I became a Christian, I loved this. I heard this from a young speaker, and I grabbed it, and I'll tell you why I loved it. As there's this quote that said um, from Francis of Assisi, they think it came from him, preach the gospel, but if necessary, use words. And I loved that because that let me off the hook to say anything. All I had to do is be good and look good, but if someone said, hey, uh, what, are you, what are you doing this for? I wouldn't really have to say much. I could just keep being good. And so for me now that I'm older and I have experienced a few things, preach the gospel and if necessary use words is actually a cop out. I hope he agrees. Um, Because through my experience, 
We must use words. We must use words. Yeah, it's great. From, from chapters 22 to 26, we see this great character of Paul living for Christ. But in every occasion, we see him speaking the gospel as well, not just living it. Peter last week looked at Acts. He, he, he delved into my chapter and Mikey's chapter. And, and he spoke on Acts 24, verse 16. It says there, strive for the, to have a good conscience without offensive, being offensive towards God or man. That's, that's brilliant. Totally agree. But we, all mu- we must tell people as well of that hope that we have in Christ. I worked in a, um, a retail position for 18 months, and I was a Christian then, went to church, told them that I wouldn't work on Sunday, just treat me like Michael Jones. And so they didn't. They were very good. Uh, there was one or two times where people got sick and I came in for them. But they had 12 staff, and every staff asked me, what was my hope? Why do I go to church? Different questions, they always brought it up, but I always answered them. Until the last kind of, I was going part-time there because I started my own business. And then the last kind of few months, the manager never asked. He was the only one I never explained the gospel to until one day he actually told me what he believed in. And it was so way out, it made my gospel or God's gospel actually normal. So it was brilliant. I listened to his, what he thought in his worldview. Then I say, "That, that is brilliant. Not mocking him, but here's why I believe in what I believe. And so we get these opportunities constantly to share the gospel. But just being an example, which is fantastic, we've got to be willing to give an answer. And so it reminds me here of that story of Paul. Once again, he's come across, he's now in front of a king, and he wants to share him of the, the hope with him that he has with inside of him the real hope, and he does it very cleverly, as we'll see. So we have that intro, and of course, why we come in here, and it it starts off in verse one, then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. And of course, why is that? Why have we quickly rushed into that? It's because Festus wasn't quite sure what to write, and so he brings in his boss to find out they they want him dead. The Jews want this man killed. Could you please figure it out? Paul, in verse 2, is very happy about this, uh, of King Agrippa. And he tells us why he's happy about it in verse 3. Because especially you, King Agrippa, you're an expert in all the customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. King Agrippa understood the Jewish culture, the Jewish religion in the time. And so Paul was kind of like, this is good. You will understand me. And so he proceeds. And so from verses 4 to 18, Paul starts his testimony. And it is, I said, his testimony again for the third time in this book. But this time, Paul starts from his youth in verse 4. He starts off way back. He says, from my youth, all the Jewish people knew me. They knew me and they knew what I was. And so this young man, Saul of Tarsus, was known from a well-to-do family, discipled from a brilliant mind at the time, attended the most prestigious rabbinical college of the day. He had great intellect. 
He had great ability and courage and um, great character and personal charm that he was known as a youth. And so it wouldn't have taken long from the leaders there to be astonished at his understanding and his answers. Paul was a brilliant, brilliant young man. And so he tells the king this. Doubtless it um, caused all that had heard him um, to ponder this man. What will he be? One day, possibly, the high priest. This was, this was Saul. Not only did everyone know who he was, but as we'll see in verse five, everyone knew what he was. He was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. Paul was one, in other words, if, if we're gonna take that, of what the New Testament tells us what a Pharisee is, he was one that could go to the temple and pray. And he would stand and pray, and he would pray, I thank God that I am not like other men, unjust, adulterers, and like this tax collector. This was Paul's heart. He would fast. He would give. He would possess. Luke 18 tells us that's what a Pharisee is. Not only that, but he would lay heavy burdens on people that could not carry them. He would want to go around in the town that he was to be seen doing works. He wanted the utmost room in the house. He wanted the best seat at the table. He wanted to go into the markets and, and people say to him, hey, Rabbi, Rabbi, answer me this. Who wouldn't? Devouring widows, making clean the outer but unclean on the inside, outwardly righteous but inwardly a hypocrite. This is Jesus' description of a Pharisee in Matthew 23. This was Paul, and he explains to King Agrippa, I was brilliant in my youth. I became a Pharisee. And so he puts himself, as it were, down. And then, so he says to him, everyone knew who I was and what I was. And then from 6 to verse 9, he brings King Agrippa into the conversation. And he brings him in and he says, I want to talk now, because of what I was and who I was, I want to talk about the hope. The hope. Not just his hope, but the hope of the whole nation in verse 6. The hope that was pursued and promised by our fathers, by God. This hope. So, I was a brilliant young man, I was a Pharisee, and now historical lesson. I want to talk to you about the hope that I had, you had, our fathers had, the nations had. In fact, the 12 tribes had, and here the 12 tribes is used as a singular. In other words, this one nation of Israel had this hope. And it was narrowed down in Genesis 49 to be through Jacob, uh, sorry, through the tribe of Judah um, in Jacob's day. Narrowed down further in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles 17 that it would be from the seed of David, this hope, this hope. And what was the hope? I think it was not only the Messiah coming, because they all believed that, but also the resurrection of the dead. In verse seven, Paul says to King Agrippa, I was a Pharisee who believed like all my countrymen in the resurrection, like my fathers, like you, but I'm accused 
by my Jewish brothers. Why am I being accused for the hope I have in the resurrection that the whole nation believed in and our fathers believed in? Why should I be picked on? They want me dead. And so in verse 8, uh, he thought, he says to the king, It's incredible, but God raises the dead. So very cleverly, Paul establishes, there's no problem now, is there, King Agrippa, with the resurrection. He is probably and more likely convinced, but the problem is, is whom God raised. There's no problem with the resurrection, it's who God raised. And if that's the problem, then Paul wants to tell the king about meeting this problem on the road to Damascus. This Jesus, who is the real reason why the Jews want him dead. And so from verses 14 to 18, Paul goes about telling the king about what happened to him. And of course, we hear them words, as if we've heard them, this is the third time, um, in verse 14. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why? The phrase in all three accounts. But here, it is the only time where Paul changes his name. In chapter 9 and 22, it's, it's written in the Greek. And that's basically here is the only time Paul goes away from the Greek and into the Hebrew. And so, and that's his name, Sola Sola. That's what he's saying. Where the Greek was Solas. And so it's slightly different. Why has Paul changed to speaking to this king? And he tells the same story three times, but this time he is using his name in the Hebrew. And that name he uses is actually profoundly subtle, but also very, very personal. In other words, he's saying to the king, his meeting of Christ was a personal meeting, a personal meeting that Christ knew his character. He wasn't just um, a part of creation. He wasn't just part of humanity. God knew him by name. God knew him by character. And so this is why Paul here changes it from the other two times. And we're given this and maybe open to the heart of God, what God thinks of the individual. We're not just his creation. We're not just his family. We're not just his congregation. But we're known to him by person, by name, unique, special, endlessly and limitlessly loved by him. And so that's a change you probably wouldn't actually see reading our English translations. But he's telling this king that I met the personal God who knew my name who knew my life, who knew all about me. And so he was aware of Saul. He was aware of Peter, John, Luke, Festus, Agrippa, and you and me. He knows our name. He knows our character, which is very heartening. And I think it was so heartening to Paul. And of course, Jesus says them words, the same words, why are you persecuting me? Sobering thought, isn't it, that Jesus held Paul accountable for persecuting himself, Jesus. And for me, that's, that's a wee bit of a scary thought, 
Because if we then, if Christ and Jesus held Paul accountable for persecuting the church, what does Christ think of when we gossip about the church, when we bring the church down, when we tell lies about the church? Are we truly persecuting the church or are we persecuting Jesus himself? And then Jesus tells Paul this funny saying. He said, it's hard for you, for you kicking against the goads. Unusual name, so I had to look that one up. Goad was a stick, which is served as a whip, um, which is used to prod and therefore direct an animal. So I know, I, I know what that means. Being in the racing game for nine years, I knew what a prodder was. Sitting behind in a sulky, I drove enough slow horses to turn the whip around and try and redirect it, not left or right, but straight ahead, quicker. And that's what it is. It's a prod for an animal to make it go where you want it to go. Now there's some debate what this means. Um, there are many better scholars than me because I'm not even one, but Longenecker says this, which is a cool name. He said he thinks it's a metaphor for useless opposition against deity. F.F. Bruce thinks it's a reflecting Paul's struggle against, against his own conscience. Hansen believed it's a struggle against his destiny. And they all could be right, but all them Greek scholars believe this, that whatever the view is, it appears a clear indication that God had been at work in Paul's heart well before this day that he met him on the road to Damascus. You can think back, and, and you don't have to turn back, but think of when Stephen was martyred and Paul was there watching it, guarding the clothes of the men who were stoning Stephen. I believe Paul was there, his conscience was pricked by God that something was wrong. Paul was an intelligent man, as we've seen, from his youth to his um, adulthood. And so think Stephen just didn't, it, wasn't a, it was more a sermon or a, or a chapter that he actually talks. It's, it's really long before they stoned him. Think of how Stephen went through his talk. He went through Abraham. He talked about Isaac and Jacob and Joseph in length about Moses, about Joseph, about David, about Solomon, and then gets to the most high. And then he gets really critical in verse um, 52, just before they stone him. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Stephen said. Saul listening. And they killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, of whom you have now become the betrayers and murderers of, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Surely, Paul there, listening to that, that long talk, you can see it in his writings that I believe that Paul, certainly a light went on in his mind, in his heart, that, wow, maybe this man has something. Remember, it says Stephen, as he died, had a face like an angel. 
And so way back, and Paul, I honestly believe Paul never forgot what he did to Stephen. It was always one of them sad things that he remembers uh, in his life, that he was there. And actually we know from this section that Paul didn't just kill Stephen, it was there, nodding his head and giving it the green light. He killed more than him. And through that time, the Lord was in his heart, trying to connect to Paul until one day he had to actually stop him in his tracks, as bright as the sun, uh, words like thunder, voice like thunder, and stop Paul. Why are you persecuting me? And so I believe um, the challenge for us in that is God working in our conscience, is God working in our hearts, in our minds, but we're too blind to see it and we do not act on it. We're talking about this in our home group in the section we're looking at with Gideon. It's a challenge, isn't it? Like if this Paul who all he wanted to do was honour God, to do his will, and yet he was the complete opposite. A danger to be on our knees. Lord, open my eyes, open my heart, open my ears to your will. What and where do you want me to go? That's a challenge because even Paul missed it earlier on. And so Paul tells King Agrippa this about his conversion to Christ. From terrorist to evangelist, he says to King Agrippa, I saw the light, I heard a voice, I fell down, I was told to stand and then I was told to go. And I believe here, once again, because sometimes we can read this and think, wow, Paul, this is marvellous. But Paul didn't want us to think of him being marvellous. His aim was one aim, to exalt the Lord Jesus. He always tells about why he's on the road to Damascus, to arrest people, to throw women and men in prison. He brings himself down to exalt his saviour, the Lord Jesus. I want to carry on because I'm out of time. Um, Festus in 24, he, he, he comes in and he goes, hey, you're beside yourself, you've gone mad. But Paul just dismisses that and carries on to his focus, which is King Agrippa. And he tells him and turns to him and he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. I know you do. And then in this verse 28, we have this, uh, in my version anyway, New King James, it says, then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuaded me to become a Christian. I know Paul, uh, Peter spoke on this, and I, I see it slightly different, just slightly, a lot. Um, and I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, because I could be very, very wrong here. But for me in the context, I, I looked up my lexicon Greek, and there's actually very few words in this verse. And so translators have to put it together in the context. But I, I think it reads like this. I think it reads, verse 28, should be do, uh, King Agrippa saying to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you could persuade me to become a Christian? Which is a lot different to what my version says, that you nearly persuaded me to become a Christian. I, I think... King Agrippa understood what Paul was saying. Paul was saying, you believe in the prophets, you believe in the resurrection, you believe in our hope, 
All you have to do is believe in Christ that he's risen from the dead and get on this Christian train and let's go. But the king was in politics for over 10 years and he wasn't going to be persuaded so quickly. And so I th- just for me, I think it could mean that in this short time, this is their first meeting, that the king was not going to be persuaded in this short time. And so Paul, he has the last say in this chapter. Short time, long time, doesn't matter. I pray that God, not only for you, but all who are listening, like a big court scene, you know, um, servants, understudies, people, fanning the flame or the, you know, the what's his name because he was a king. All these people were in the room. Paul said, I don't care whether you great or small or just the people beside you. I would have them believe today just by listening and they could become what I have become except with the change. And, and there is Paul's heart. There is Paul's heart to the gospel. That's where we see it time and time again through the second part of this book. And it's a real joy to me. In his, he's been two years prison. Oh, his joy is just to see someone being saved. And that's it, eh? As I close, oftentimes evangelism is unsuccessful as far, uh, as far as immediate impression goes. You know, you speak to someone and they go, oh, okay, and politely walk away. But success also lies in the faithfulness of the witness that is offered. And that is Paul here. And it should be us as well. People saying no to Christ's claim, though always disappointing, does not imply a failure of sharing. And so, preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. No, no. Preach the gospel. Be an example and preach it in word as well. Shall we pray? Father, thank you so much for your word. And for me, your encouraging word to, to, to just to push us not only to be an example, and that takes some doing in this world, but also to give an account of what we believe in, to tell people of our wonderful, wonderful Saviour. And if that is how we met him, we don't normally, not much, many of us have met him on the road to Damascus, but I pray most of us have met him in some special, special way and how he has changed our lives from what we were to what we are. I know you're still working on us, but we have such a wonderful, wonderful story to tell. Lord, help us not only be an example, but to help us to be brave enough and give us the courage to stand up and talk to people about why our lives have changed, why we meet on a Sunday, to talk about our hope, that hope of the Lord Jesus coming and meeting us, dying for our sin and rising again on the third day. And he's with us today. Lord, also help us with that challenge if you're speaking to some of us or myself, that we will listen in our conscience, in our hearts, to change our ways, to change our life, to change where we are. Lord, help us. Give us ears and a heart and, and eyes to see in your word as if you're speaking to us to change like it did with Paul, but it took so much more with him. So thank you so much for 
as a church, being able to go through this book and see the heart of a man that just is in love with you. And may it be an encouragement to us to fall in love with you more and more and therefore be an example and tell people. So we give you thanks in the Saviour's precious name. Amen. Amen.